I couldn't be more certain of this one thing that I will live my life in India. There's absolutely there's no doubt about it. Fear is very much a thought, which is an expression of the past or an expression of the future. It's got nothing to do with the now. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Unconventional Podcast, where two relatively conventional guys from Silicon Valley bring you conversations and life stories of people who are anything but conventional. We find their stories inspiring and hopefully you do too. This is Gaurav. And this is Girish. And today we are talking to Krishna McKenzie, who is as unconventional as it gets. He was born and raised in England and moved to India when he was just 19 years old. He's pretty much stayed in Auroville near Pondicherry since then and has devoted his life to natural farming. Now, Krishna founded Solitude Farms in Auroville, and that's a farm that strictly adheres to natural farming practices. That means no tractors, no pesticides, no fertilizers, and no removing weeds. In this, he was heavily inspired by Masanobu Fukuoka. A quick word on Fukuoka, because he comes up multiple times in our conversation. Fukuoka was a Japanese farmer and philosopher, and he pioneered and popularized natural farming, which is sometimes also referred to as permaculture. If you're interested in learning more about any of this, we have links in the show notes. Anyway, coming back to Krishna, in 2011, he started the Solitude Organic Cafe, which serves produce from the farm and is now incredibly popular. I've been there, the food is delicious, but really the lasting impression from my visit out there was the tour of the farm. Krishna's passion for the soil and the wonders of Mother Nature is so infectious that even I, as someone who knows nothing about agriculture, left feeling inspired. Krishna is passionate about music as well and is the frontman of the band Emergence. Now, unfortunately, I wasn't a part of this recording because I was traveling, but I learned a lot from Krishna's journey. The conversation dives into how Krishna decided to make India his home, the birth of his lifelong passion for soil, and also what vegetables you should eat more. If you'd like to learn more about Krishna, do check out the links in the show notes. So now, on to the show. Hey Krishna, welcome to the show. And I guess to start off with, I was reading a little bit about your story and saw that you moved to Auroville and Pondicherry when you were 19 years old. So if we zoom back a little to the time when maybe you were 15 or 16 years old, would you have expected to be where you are today? At the age of 15, I was very fortunate to go to Jiddu Krishnamurti School, J. Krishnamurti School in England, where I just escaped the a terrible bondage of being in a private boarding school in England. It was absolute terrible experience from the age of 12 and a half to 15. And arriving in the Krishnamurti School was a bit like arriving in sort of um, Elysium, you know, in paradise. And, you know, it was vegetarian. There were 60 students. There were 40 teachers. The gardener was paid the same as the principal. Everyone spoke to each other on their first name. There was no formalities. There was such a sense of care and love and, you know, an inquiry, which was, uh, I think, you see, I had grown up. My mother was, uh, you know, she was a, a devotee of so many gurus of Muktananda, Osho, and uh, Ananda Mai Mai in Bengal, and all these different gurus, no? So I had grown up in a house. Yeah with all sorts of spirituality and new age stuff. And I was very drawn to that. 
actually at the age of 13 I was really into reading about Sufism and and uh, having my own experiences so being in that environment really was like it really proved um, you know it proved uh, something that was very innate within my being it brought it alive it gave it space you know because in a normal school that sort of inner inquiry a sort of any sort of inner questioning is not really given space you know you're you're herded along at the, yeah. uh, to become this and to get that result and to get into the next class and the next university. And so I was given a lot of freedom, space to inquire. And, uh, you know, my first couple of years there was just, was just, I mean, my four years there were just beautiful. But after two years of being there, or after one year of being there, a very close friend of Jay Krishnamurti, Mr. Prinis Roy, a Swiss millionaire, he paid for the whole school and the school in Ojai, California, to visit the full four schools in India. Oh, wow. So I had my first experience of coming to be in India at the age of 16. And, I, you know, I had been in a tough school, and my parents had gone through divorce, so I wasn't the easiest student. But when I was in India, I think I was the, everyone's favorite. You know, I was loved by all the Indian students and the teachers, and everyone loved, everyone loved me, So, um, which was not the case in England at all. And I think I was one of the only students who, who started to try and le- learn an Indian language. I, was, I remember sitting on the bus in, in Bangalore trying to learn Kannada uh, with the bus driver. And I had a wonderful time in India, but after seven weeks, I'd lost 10 kilos and I was really happy to get back home. But when I arrived back home in London, actually the, where I lived was in the south, but when I got to the airport there, Heathrow, it felt like such a profound culture shock. To, to go on a motorway and then to arrive in a city where with endless roads, with endless houses, everyone, you know, locked in their house watching the same channel on the TV set and it, there were no cows in the street and everything was very sterile and yeah. it really disturbed me, actually. And I think that actually, in retrospect, I think that that was very much very profound seed that was sown that said, you know, I don't want to live like this. This is not what I want. You know, I didn't have the vocabulary and the vision of what I did want. But I remember as the, as the years progressed, I sort of boycotted Christmas. And I would just spend most of my time at the school because I felt there was a sanity there. You know, there was something meaningful in that environment. The school felt more alive. It felt more like home. Yes, very much. When you got to the village, there was a village called West Neon near to the school, Krishnamurti School, Brockwood Park. And as you got to that village, which was still a good four, five, six kilometers away, I could feel the atmosphere of the school. For me, it was like a Krishnamurti, I mean, not to make a mystery, mystery of it, but I felt some sort of aura of that place. And it was very special to me. It was a very, very special place for me to be. And I gave everything I had to being at that school and all my energy and my love and participating in making it a beautiful place. And I was very, very, you know, it was a grace to be there because I, when I was 18, I met one of the people who I considered to be like one of my main teachers, a guy called another, he was also called Stigish, he was a German guy, and he lived in Oroville in the 70s and the 80s. And he was the gardener. Now, at the Krishnamurti school, I had been with people like David Bohm, um, you know, Einstein's prodigy, and Mary Lutkins, and all these wonderful characters who've been with Krishnamurti, very interesting people. 
But to tell you the truth, it was only Friedrich who really inspired me. This guy, Freddy, we call him Freddy. He was the gardener and he'd, he'd work all the time. He was always working, not fast, not slow, but there was a sort of diligence. And, and he slowly explained to me what yoga was, you know, what a conscious act of inner inquiry on a daily level was and that all life was yoga and his work was yoga. And it was very, very, very inspiring. So I started to go walking in the night with him. He used to walk in the night. So we go walking in the night in silence. And he, he sort of said, you know, like, well, if you want to understand yourself, challenge yourself. He said, what are you scared of? I said, well, I'm scared of walking alone at night. He said, well, start, you know. So I started to walk a little bit, 15 minutes, 20 minutes. Within a few months, I was walking two or three hours alone in the forest at night. And I was facing fear and realizing that that was something very conscious that one could do. So then this guy told me about Auroville. He told me about the mother and Shurabindo, who are the people who started Auroville. And, and um, I had a couple of very profound experiences in relation to that. And I just knew that I would come and live here. There was not a shadow of a doubt. I remember some of my teachers saying, have you made this guy into some sort of hero for you? Are you idolized him? Are you sure you know what you're doing? And I could only say to them, you know, I couldn't be more certain of this one thing, that I will live my life in India. There's absolutely, there's no doubt about it. And they didn't believe me. But, um, you know, Pisceans, I'm a Piscean, we, we have a, a very strong intuition. And you had that kind of certainty. Yeah, that I had. That at 18. Right. Like, even though you'd only spent a few weeks in India, right? At that point, you'd only spent a few weeks there. And it sounds like seven weeks and also... The gardener. Yeah, but it wasn't to do with those few weeks. It was a. Uh, it was to do with an inner knowing about one's destiny. You know, in Tamil they say Talavidi. You know, the destiny is written on your forehead. You know, I had a very, yeah. a very profound sense of that, and yeah, it was like that. So my life brought me to Oroville very quickly. By the 19 years old, I was living in a hut and farming in Oroville. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was I was going to ask you how, how you ended up there. And it sounds like, what was the name of the gardener who had all of this influence on you? Freddy, Freddy. Freddy. Was he like a mentor figure to you through life, like even after you ended up? I mean, yeah, he was a mentor, but not like he wasn't trying to be anything. We were, you know, it's when you meet yeah. someone of, of, uh, of profound beauty and you, you just have an enormous sense of love for them and, and gratitude and respect. And we spent a lot of time together. He would, uh, he was still living in Germany, and he came over. He would come over, and he, he'd bring plants, and we'd, we'd plant trees together, and we'd do the farming together. And we, he helped many times too in with my projects in Oroville as I was growing up. Yeah. And um, yeah, he's very much present in my life. And actually, the the funny thing is, he he actually tried to come back and join Oroville, and it didn't really work out, and he left again. Um, that was when I came. He tried to come and join all again. That didn't work out. And then he left. And now he's come back again. And now he runs the Matcha Monday Garden. And everyone, he's like the bees, bees, you know. He's yeah. like, because he's such a master with the plants. He can almost talk to the plants. You can see it in the way he's transformed the public gardens at the Matcha Monday, which is the, the sort of communal temple where people go and meditate. Yeah, the dome sphere, actually. So I actually, now, after all these years, we, I give him a, a free fruit and vegetable basket every Monday. <laughs> just because he deserves that, you know, especially from me. So very, very sweet, you know. 
Is that where your love for growing plants and your love for Mother Earth, which really comes through very clearly every time you're talking about farming and, and permaculture, is that where it started? Was that something you'd done in the past? Or was that wasn't that the experience you had at the Krishnamurti school that continued on to your life in Oroville? I can say that Freddie pointed me out, you know, he was a bit of a black sheep, you know, in the in the way that he was absolutely certain about what he was doing. When you were in England in the Krishnamurti school, you had no, you know, no understanding of what it meant to start a community on your own and grow food and have cows and bullet cart and and ride horses and do all the things that he'd done in the 70s and 80s. And none of the other gardeners had the experience he had. So he, he showed me things. Like the basic thing he showed me was that returning organic matter back to the soil is probably the first and last technique in any type of farming, whether you're growing roses or whether you're growing, you know, potatoes. Returning organic matter and valuing that organic matter from what's growing around you. In England, stinging nettles. In India, some weeds, some neem leaves, whatever's growing around you. And to return that organic matter back to the ground as the first act of love, you know. Later, I've developed, of course, my own vocabulary to express this. But it's, um, it's an act of devotion to return organic matter back to the soil. And I think that Freddie showed me that in the beginning. We used to go out sizing with a big size. We used to size stinging nettles and bring them back to the, the, the vegetable beds. And, and he'd show me, you know, cut the comfrey and cut the this and add this and put that and always mulching, mulching, mulching. And ironically, after I met Freddie, I met my, I discovered my guru, who is a uh, Japanese farmer called Masanobu Fukuoka. Mm-hmm. And the name of his book is The One Straw Revolution. So he was saying that we could start a revolution by returning all the rice straw back to the land. And essentially it's the same thing, you know, it's the returning of organic matter back to the land to facilitate Mother Nature's potential. Yeah, I definitely want to dig more into your love for farming and and everything organic. But just touching back to this point in your life when you were 18 or 19 years old and decided to migrate to a different continent and live out your life there, I'm so intrigued by by how you say it just felt right. It was very intuitive for you. Did you try rationalizing it? Did you try saying, hey, no, if I go to India, this will be the type of career I have. This is how I'll sustain myself and make a living. Or was that kind of secondary? Was it, you know, you we went with the flow? No, there was nothing like, absolutely nothing like that. There was no strategy. There was no thinking like that. It was purely from the heart. It was a knowing, an intense knowing. And you see, you keep, you mentioned a couple of times my love for farming and everything. The love for farming is a context. You know, it's a context for an expression of non-duality, an expression of that which is eternally there, that which we all are, you know, like Tatsuvamasi, that thou art. So it's more the movement of an inner movement of um, wanting to, to explore that more than anything and recognizing that through farming would probably be the best way to explore that for me as a person and as I explored more and more Fukuoka I could see that's exactly what he was talking about nature's already perfect there's nothing you can do to improve upon nature nature is this in in awe-inspiring benediction and the only thing we have to do to to receive that benediction 
is basically to return organic matter back to the soil and she manifests. Yeah. And that's what, you know, in the most of beautiful of ironies, that's what I've experienced at Solitude Farm here in Oroville, is that we've returned organic matter in such copious ways, such huge amounts of regularly returning the organic matter growing around us. And now there is a food forest that's manifested with our efforts, but a lot of it, the tamarind, the guavas, the custard apples, a huge array of spinaches, papayas, nanari roots, various flowers that we eat, a lot of different plants emerging from their own accord, you know, different herbs and chilies. And one looks back at that with amazement and you see the trajectory of this life which had been started off from an inner aspiration. Of course, then marriage hits you and kids hit you and you're, you know, you're in the throngs of, of existence, you know, and making and having to pay wages and all these types of things. But if you cut all that away, at the end of the day, there's an incredible inner urge for truth. And that inner urge for truth is what brought me here. It wasn't farming per se. Farming was a context. Did you try exploring that truth in other ways other than farming before you landed on farming as as the one that spoke to you the most? I mean, sure, yeah, sitting in meditation and, you know, different things like that and some in with various uh, friends and teachers and, yeah, lots of things like that. I mean, it's not like, I think that, you see, when you understand that nature is really perfect and that there is nothing you can do to improve upon nature, that conviction is clear in your mind, you know, and that that the soil is an intelligence. And that intelligence itself yeah. is fertility. And that fertility itself is divinity. And that, that comes about of its own accord, without effort. That when all of those things start to become clear to you, it's not like, it's not a linear approach to like, oh, I'm practicing to discover truth. It's not like that. One realizes that, okay, there's lots of glitches to one's character. There's lots of things that need your awareness, your attention. But hang on, we're already there. You know, the first step and last step is freedom. We are already that. And that perfume of oneness, that perfume of of this uh, eternal now that nature very much represents is, is very much present in this lifestyle. So you landed in Oroville and you knew you wanted to explore non-duality and and there were many things you were interested in including meditation and yoga and and i guess this love for the earth and nature was solitude the first thing you did no the first thing i did was i was um the first thing i did i was directed to annapurna farm which is 134 acres where people told me they're practicing masanobu fukuoka's natural farming so i went there and i told them i want to live there and they said how do you know i said i know so they said, okay, come back uh, come back tomorrow. And I came back the next day. And then they said, come back tomorrow. I came back the next day. After a few days, I was living there. And I was digging ponds, milking cows, plowing millets and harvesting rice and doing... I had my apprenticeship there. So my apprenticeship there lasted about a bit less than a year and a half. And in that apprenticeship, I can say that I learned about the seasons. I learned basics about how to plant field crops you know, what it meant to run a farm on a basic level, how to milk cows, how to, how to speak the language. You know, I learned the basics of the language, of the Tamil language, and how to build a hut. And I got lots of skills, you know, in that year and a half. 
And after that, I I really had the feeling that, in fact, it was probably the hardest work I've ever done in my life. We worked six days a week, eight hours a day. We worked like dogs. And uh, it was a wonderful time. But I felt that it was too easy in some level. So, you know, the food was cooked for me. The laundry was done for me. So I found another land in Orzo, which was uh, 50 acres that wasn't being used. And I got the permission from the right people. And I went out there with a bullet cart and a, an old tent, a sort of bedroom tent and granite pillars and my guitar. And, uh, and I started living out there, building my own hut. And we had to carry water. And I started growing tapioca and um, some bananas and some fruit trees. And Freddie came and visited me and we planted lots of fruit trees and forestation. And I was there for about a, uh, a bit less than a year. And then I went to visit my girlfriend. I was really alone in that place. I lived as a hermit, you know. I was like Robinson Crusoe. It was really yeah. out in the pits, you know. It was, uh, it was in the place where all of them was going to be started and was sort of left. Oh, so it's not the current location of the of the farm? No, it wasn't. It was the old location of Oroville. It's still Oroville, but it's like really on the outskirts, you know. It was about 40, 40 minutes from the center of Oroville. And um, quite an extraordinary experience. But then I, after that time, I went to visit my girlfriend in Japan. I uh, had a Japanese girlfriend from the Christian Mighty School, who was also a good friend of Freddie's. And we came back to Oroville, and we came back to live there, and it was really not working out for us there. So we, started, we were offered to start Solitude, and that was in January of 96. So then we started Solitude with a group of young people. And very quickly... You know, within within a year, within sort of six to eight months a year, the original group fell away because it really wasn't what they had wanted. And, and I was quite clear what this should be. This was farmland and it had to be respected as such. It shouldn't be planted with forest trees. You know, farmland was precious. Forest land was land that needed to be reforested. It was degraded land. So this was good farmland. It required a farm. So I was adamant that it should become a farm. And then people not aligned to that, they sort of left. And I was left there with a couple of camel friends who started to live with me there. And it was me and my camel friends. So it was, uh, it was quite, uh, and we started to have volunteers and stuff and, and um, just trying to figure out how to do it ourselves. You know, it was, it was very, very different. Yeah. In Annapurna, you woke up, at, you know, woke up, had breakfast and, Eight o'clock, you went and met the boss and you asked him what job today and he'd tell you what job to do and you went and did your job. You know, it was very easy. Here, you had to wake up and figure out yourself what to do. That was a, a, a long learning curve. And I left in that from 96 to 2000, I left twice. I, I'm also a musician. I was in Paris making a couple of albums with a, a singer that I was desperately in love with. And I'd gone out for five months. I'd gone out for six months. And then in 2000, I realized that why I'd come to Oroville was not clear to me anymore. And that I really wanted to follow this girl and I really wanted to follow this, uh, my music and give my music a shot, you know. So I, um, I left Oroville for about two and a half years and I did a second album. I was in California in teaching a little bit in the Krishnamurti school. I was in Spain studying um, flamenco guitar. I was all over the place, you know, doing different things. And um, in Granada, in Andalusia, I had a real um, sort of a vision that what am I doing running around the world when in all of those I can do absolutely 
absolutely anything I wanted. I could study Russian. I could, you know, do yoga. I could, I have a farm. We have solar panels and a well. I could have a rock band. I could do what I wanted as long as I had the maturity to work with it. And that sort of was very clear to me again. So I came back home immediately. And the first thing I did was to make a list of all the reasons I'd come to Oroville in the beginning. And on top of that list was Fukuoka. I come here especially because of Fukuoka. And the very next day, someone gave me an invitation to meet Fukuoka. Now, I thought he was dead. Oh, wow. I thought he'd already gone because he must have been 80 or 90 or 100. And uh, I didn't have any money. So the friend from Annapurna gave me the money. Another friend who is a Vipassana yogi, he told me, come and stay with me. I have a tent because there was no room to stay at the venue. Don't worry, you can stay with me. I have a tent. And uh, all of a sudden, I was with Fukuoka for five days. And it was like meeting my guru. Yeah. It was quite extraordinary. And it was like having an initiation. That's what it was like for me. It's very personal, you know, extremely personal. But for me, it was like an initiation. It was like meeting my guru and getting some very, very key pointers. You know, one thing he told us, only a fool. Yeah. Only a fool will understand farming, understand his relationship with nature. You know, things like that stuck with me like anything, you know. And that's what made you come back and you went straight back into solitude? I guess the inkling of that, the, the premonition of that brought me back home, no? So when I got back to solitude after that sort of five days, ten days, one week sort of thing, that was in, this is in 2003, that's 18 years ago. Since then, I haven't stopped. Since then, it's been a trajectory of uh, year-by-year growth, year-by-year amazement, year-by-year reaping the harvest and, the, and seeing the farm develop in the light of Fukuoka. Nothing less than that, you know. I mean, many people come here and say this really seems to reflect what he was talking about, a non-interventional way of farming, a farming that that really honors nature, loves nature, and, and has so much to give us on a nutritional level, on a cultural, social, economic, ecological level. And how the narrative has emerged for me so clearly, you know. And then, of course, you know, I don't know how much you know about that, but in the last two and a half years, my speeches and my talks have gone viral and gone on the, on the TV a lot in India and on replay and replay and... So this sort of uh, mini sort of celebrity status is, I, I just find it extraordinary that someone who has recognized the importance to return organic matter, from there a restaurant has started that became super well known. The farm with all its workshops have had seven huge music festivals with 15 bands, 1,500 people, endless, endless concerts in the farm and a lot, a lot of people coming here and and feeling touched by everything, that's happened by returning organic matter back to the soil. That's happened by recognizing that the soil is a divinity. And if we honor that soil, she will manifest herself. And that's what's happened at Solitude Farm. And it's happened without effort. Not without work, but without effort. By helping nature do what nature does best, or really allowing nature to do what nature does best, because so much of what we do... Yeah, facilitating it somehow. Right. I'm curious why you felt like Orwell gave you a freedom that you didn't get anywhere else, because, I mean, thinking back to, you know, you were in Granada, 
you could have gone anywhere with your life. It sounds to me, at least looking at it from the outside, that you had the same freedom there. Maybe you could have started a farm in Spain. I don't know. Some, maybe that's a ridiculous idea, right? But I'm curious why. What was that draw to Oroville and the freedom that Oroville gave you to do everything and indulge in all of your interests? I mean, I think there's probably a few aspects to that. The fact that Oroville is in Tamil Nadu, Tamil Nadu is in India. I have a very strong affinity to Tamil Nadu. You know, I my Tamil is pretty good. I feel very close to the people, to the culture. My wife is Tamil. My kids speak Tamil. I don't know. I can't imagine Oroville not being in Tamil Nadu. For me, it's all about Tamil Nadu, you know? Yeah. And, I mean, the way you think about the world and your place in it, just it's so non-mainstream how much do you want society to change in a broader way to adopt Oroville's principles in a sense or is, is that a personal aim of yours to spread this word I mean you see I've never really been someone who feels like their job is to change the world although I'll share it with a passion and um, it's up to people you know, to grasp it you know when you're telling something very true when you're telling something that's based in truth, that you can't do more than shine the light of what you're saying and, and share it with people. It's up to people to get it. So I'm working on that as well, you know. I've got a local farmer that I'm trying to help start the CSA, Community Supported Agriculture. But you see, I see so many of these things. It's really about other people, their understanding, what they've grasped, what they... So I give a lot of trainings, I give a lot of workshops, every week I give workshops, every week I give a tour. So we're coming up upon the end of this conversation. I thought it'd be fun to end it with a series of rapid fire questions. So feel free to sort of get into as much detail or give as short of an answer as you would like. As someone who, who loves plants, you know, what's the one vegetable you wish you could see on everyone's plate? Probably green papaya. Green papaya? Yeah, because it's a weed. And it's, um, it grows like completely like a weed. It grows so easy. It gives a huge amount of fruits. It produces all year. And when you peel it and grate it, it's pretty much like a carrot. You can have it salad, Thai salad. You can have it as a soup, like a lemongrass, coconut milk, green papaya soup. You can make chutneys. Today we had it as a vegetable. You can have it with tamarind, with peanut powder. It's such a versatile fruit. And if people started eating that, you, I think that it would make people realize that food security is not some sort of out there concept, you know. It's something very much within our grasp, you know, and it would lead us then to the Murungakere, to the Sundakai, the Turkey Berry, to the Manatakali, to the Solanian spinaches, to all of the, to the Nanari, to all of these plants that we're illustrating in the farm that grow without any effort, that use, you know, less water, that have high medicinal nutritional value, that require no expertise, no chemical, no machinery, and are basically growing in abundance. So the green papaya represents that in very many ways. Yeah, that's wonderful. I remember you mentioning how you had maybe planted one or two papaya trees and the rest just came up on their own, essentially, in the farm. Very much so, yeah. Yeah. Okay, if you had to pick your favorite Fukuoka quote, anything come to mind? The society that doesn't know where its food comes from is a society without culture, and humanity without culture will die, will perish. What would you like people to say about you when you turn 80 years old? <laughs> that I wasn't such an asshole as I really am. <laughs> What's a book that you're gifted a lot? The One Straw Revolution. Endless copies. Who, who is that by? Masanobu Fukuoka. 
Yes. But I have many other books I love. Cool. And I was going to ask you, you have many other books? Yeah. What's what's something else? Like Nisargadatta uh, Maharaj, I am that and uh, the great Portuguese poet Fernando Pessoa and books by J Krishnamurti, David Bohm ending of time, Ramana Maharishi, all sorts of philosophical books there right up my street. <laughs> yeah. I've been meaning to read J Krishnamurti's writings for a while. Is there like one book that you think I should start with? Yeah, the commentaries on living are very nice to digest. They're very beautiful. If you could do a different job, what would it be? I realize this is a weird question to ask you because there are so many things you're already doing. Like you're in music, you're doing involved in the plethora of things. But if you could do something else, like what would you what comes to mind that you haven't done yet? I would love to experience the potential I have. I mean, I've done some pretty serious theater with some very very at least especially one particular director who was very very great and I do dream to live my uh, acting life one time properly you know like really that it's alive and kicking and I cuz I love that I love the transcendence I feel when I'm on stage and um, really in a beautiful play where you know you're really touching on the very profound depths of humanity uh, by transcending who you are and expressing it as another character that you're acting so i'd love to do that properly one time anything else you'd like to share oh, i think this is a very different interview normally i tell them just let me speak and i'll let, and i'll get on with it and uh, this is very nice i i really appreciate our uh, exchange it's been very nice thanks i i really enjoyed this as well there's a lot that i think i've learned and taken away from this from this conversation particularly still blown away by how you just knew what the right thing was for you at that age and that's something i haven't yet experienced in my life but but i certainly hope to know that that kind of certainty one day as well so thanks so much krishna for sharing your thoughts with us and your story thank you so much we hope you enjoyed the show You can now subscribe to us via Google Podcasts, Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can find links for your podcast player at anchor.fm/unconventional-podcast. And if you'd like to reach out to us, please do so at hellounconventional@gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you.